Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. I'm Mike Boris and this is Straight Talk. And they would have probably thought with the change two minutes to go, why is he changing the goalkeeper? Mm. What's he doing? Said to Andrew Redmayne, this is your turn. This is your time. Go out there and do it for Australia. Whichever way the brain is going, the rest will follow. It's all on this for Peru. And Redmayne makes the save. It's a save that means the world to Australia. Graham Arnold is known as a hard bastard. He's established himself as one of Australia's most esteemed football managers. I understand media. They've got to create headlines. And these days, it's not a good headline. I'm happy to take all the, the brunt of all the shit as long as they leave the players alone. He is now facing his biggest challenge yet. It's not written in stone that France will beat Australia at the World Cup. People call it the group of death. Every group's hard. Mm. Every group's tough. But I call it the group of dreams. From the first minute to the last, we will give everything that we've got. Graham Arnold, welcome <laughs> to Straight Talk, mate. Thanks, Mark. Great Good to, to see you. You, you too. Know, we know each other through uh, a mutual friend of ours, Jeff Fennick, and uh, usually we're out there listening to Jeff. Um, carry on. Um, and I've done a few interviews when you've been there with Jeff. Um yeah, sitting around, you know, we've been supporting him and uh, we just said on a really important point, I mean, we were talking about before we started and, and I think it's a really important point. Mm. I'll, I'll, is there, do you think in your mind, a an issue in sport in Australia and particularly in your sport, that's football, um, whereby there's a sense of entitlement or there's not that hunger that used to exist I hate saying it back in our day. Mm. Like take Jeff, for example, the Murray mm. from Waller. Exactly. Yeah. I think, you know, if you look at uh, the old generation and you look at the greatest, probably the greatest boxers in the world and, and sportsmen, they've come from hard times. You know, you look at Mike Tyson, you look at all those uh, great, again, different sports. Messi. <laughs> Messi. Yeah, Maradona. Maradona. Pele. All of them got, grew up in slums or they grew up the hard way and – you know, it's probably, you know, myself, I grew up, uh, you know, in Sylvania, a uh, great place, don't get me wrong. Sylvania but, uh, or Sylvania Waters? Is Sylvania. Two, they're different. Yeah, okay. exactly. Because my mum and dad <clears throat> moved from Punchbowl to Sylvania. Yeah. We live in a place called Evelyn Street. Yeah, that was near, close to me. Yeah, so, and it's not wow. the same as Sylvania Waters. That was, that was 100 metres away from where I lived. Sylvania Waters was fancy. Yeah. And yeah. Sylvania was still old fibro joints and timber yeah. joints. And uh, we lived in my grandmother's garage because uh, my parents, my my dad was a cab driver and, uh, and and an alcoholic, and my mother didn't work and at that time, and uh, she was ill, uh, and so from the age of well one or two, I lived. We lived in my grandmother's garage for twenty three years until I could afford, or, or until I went overseas, got married, and then went overseas. But uh, getting back to that, uh, what you're saying, Mark, is I, I truly believe that you know the old Aussie way was you know, the hard way. And it's probably my generation that has made it different and, and that, that what we didn't have as kids, we wanted to give our kids. And that was a beautiful white picket fence around a beautiful house and give them everything they wanted. And uh, and especially when it comes to Australian sport, it, uh, we haven't learned, we don't, we don't hurt anymore when we lose. And when I say that, it's uh, all of our main sports, AFL, cricket, rugby league, soccer or football, there's no relegation, no promotion, no relegation. What so, do you mean by relegation? You mean get dropped to a different different division? Yeah. And, you know, if you, all the boys that are overseas, like, for example, uh, the Socceroo boys, 
they sign contracts that if they get relegated, their salary get cuts by 50%. They get win bonuses. Like these days here in Australia, and especially in football, there's no win bonuses. You get paid a certain amount of money just to turn up, to sit up in the grandstand or be on the field. So it's got to be the individual's, you know, commitment, desire to get out there and fulfil their dreams that, that they want to get out on the pitch and do it and win it. And you've got to find ways to motivate this different generation. So well, let's go back to say, let's pick on someone like Fennec. I mean, he's, he's a boxer, of course, but, you know, the, the great soccer players, the great rugby league players, rugby union players, whoever, great sportsmen generally, Dawn Fraser, for example, mm. as swimmers, um, they're obviously committed like a lot of great sports people are committed today. But what was the difference? It's more than commitment. It's, it's, and it's more than desire. It's, is it need? Need and will. I think that, uh, you know, I think if Jeff probably, if he didn't do what he did, you know, Johnny Lewis grabbed him and took him to the gym in Newtown and started training him, he would have ended up in jail or. Probably. Yeah. And it's sad to hear or say, but that changed his life. And, uh, you know, the, the, the those people that become superstars from that, in those days there was no social media. There was like, I remember black and white TV. I don't know if you still I do. I sure do. Yeah, <laughs> black and white TV and there was only, f- you know, f- five stations. And, and they closed at 10.30 at night. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, turn it off. Sunday night was a good night. Yeah. It was, it was uh, when I was a kid, it was Sunday night, 6.30 p.m. It was Disneyland. Yeah, yeah, and they used to have the uh, the, the there was a bloke. The, it was a little fry tuck. He used to go into the mm. stairs, and he was uh, Mc, the McWilliams guy, <laughs> and he advertised McWilliams yeah. sherry or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I think you know, I think one of the biggest losses football has had is backyard football, right? Which is, you know, there was no computers to sit in front of, no, you know, uh, no Xbox to play on the TV, and all that type of stuff. That in the old days. Straight after school, like you didn't know what time it was. Mum used to say, or Dad, be home by dark. Yeah, yeah. And straight after school, what did you do? You went and played cricket or rugby league or football with your mates in the backyard. And, you you know, I was playing probably those days in the backyard with my brother who's four and a half years older than me and his mates. And it's fun. And these days... Kids don't do that. They're more more inclined to have to pay to go to academies, have to pay to uh, to do what they've got to do rather than doing it free will and and with a lot of enjoyment. And, and there's a lot more um, emphasis on parents today taking kids to organised sports. So you know mm. that means mum or dad or somebody's got to be able to pick up little Graham yep. from school and take him along to some other sort of organised arrangement, whereas and parents are much more busy today. A lot of times both parents work. Um, so that makes it more difficult. Therefore, it's easier for the parents just to say, listen, little Graeme, you go off and, uh, you know, you go, get on your on your iPad and do, you know, play games and stuff like that. Because mm. I agree. I remember my my, you know, my mum used to say, get home, I go out and play. And as soon as it was dark, mum used to call, get on the yep. little porch we had there and yell out, Mark, yes. come home for dinner. Yep. And it was exactly. dark and I'd sprint home. Yeah. And, uh, and that, that was my life and uh, yep. because I didn't have any choices. So are you saying then sportsmen today um, aren't as maybe as skilled either because they haven't sort of lived that sort of life where they've had to practice with the kids in the street and, and you know, a whole, a whole lot of random people, play games of touch or soccer or, or whatever it is. But are you And cricket, you know, like, you know, playing French cricket, playing with a – or playing with a, the, you yeah. know, the, 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 the uh, um, wicket. You know, the yeah, wicked the stumps, stumps. The stumps, I yeah, mean, yeah. Are, you, are you saying that? Yeah, look, I think that uh, in my sport, I think in junior level, the sport's become so much more rigid. It's not flexible. You know, the kids these days are told to play a certain way. And the old days you just played yeah. and, and you got your strengths and, you, you know, you, you had weaknesses. But, you know, it, you weren't told pass a ball from A to B, B to C. You played what you saw. Yeah, what's in front of you? Yeah, what's in front of you, and and I think that was with all sports, and and that was because of the way you were developed as a kid in those days was in the backyard, and a lot is focused on kids these days. I remember, you know, I'd play soccer in winter, I'd play cricket in summer, or or and do little athletics. Yeah, and I was playing all sports. These days, it's one sport in a lot of ways. It's not you know. 
cricket was a great – I think uh, cricket was a great uh, thing for me with football because of the hand-eye coordination instead of the foot-eye yeah. coordination in football. So the hand-eye coordination in cricket was, was you know, and the ball obviously much smaller and that, but uh, uh, it, it helped with football. Maybe Marin Dornan played uh, cricket, which is why, <laughs> the reason why he was so good in the 86 uh, final when he, he shot his hand up there in yeah, Mexico yeah, City. Yeah. Oh, that's volleyball. <laughs> volleyball, <laughs> the hand of God. So that's, that's very interesting that you, you should say that. And uh, so if I then say to you, well, other countries like like Brazil and, mm. and like a lot of other countries, like European countries, a lot of and African countries in particular, mm. and even place like India, which doesn't play football as such, but like or, or it's not it's not a prevalent sport there. But if you look at those places, they're always going to develop their kids through those environments that you just described that we lived our lives in. Therefore, by sort of like by definition, they've got a head start on us. Yeah. Brazil is you know the, the, most of their their skills and developments on the beach. They play beach football. Yeah. You know, indoor football. And, you know, so it's, I think what I'm trying to say is that, you know, more fun, more five-a-sides, more, you know, small games. And, Are we on and, the back foot then? And, 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 and enjoy it. Well, you know, I think in our sport we don't play enough football when it comes to that. Um, the kids, a lot has become too rigid, you know, with the academies and with uh, SAP, you know, uh, skills acquisition and and things like that, where it's uh, you know the kids these days, you know, should be able to have more fun. So is it sort of textbook style, is what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. I think uh, again, I only can really speak for my sport, but I, I love rugby league. I watch rugby league every week and that, and you know, you see how rigid some of the players are. I remember the old days where Stevie Mortimer used to chip it over the top and run in behind. Chance his and, hand. Yeah, exactly. And, and it's, it's like these days, everything is so regimented and everyone sort of seems to play the same and then it gets down to the mental aspect of who wants it more. If that's the case then, Graham, then what, I mean, you must have to ask yourself this question all the time. Um, sure, we, we get into the World Cup, World Cup um, you know, we qualify for Qatar, um, you, know, you beat beat Peru, you, you win that last game, that's elation, that's probably relief as, as well as much as anything, but we're not going to win it then. Uh, or, or how do you get your mindset in a right mindset when you say, well, shit, I'm playing against these Mexicans and Brazilians and Argentinians and French and whatever who, you know, are probably bringing people out of African mm. places that the French control. How do you get your mindset right, your mindset right, so you can get the mindset of the players right when you, you know, you think of yourself this sort of thought and we are on the back foot a little bit because I mean, we don't start at the same age group and we, we live a much more structured life. Yeah, but you can't uh, think about being on the back foot, you know. I I did at the Olympics and uh, you remove I removed the name of Argentina because as soon as you say Argentina, if I said to you about Argentina football, who do you think of straight away? Maradona. Exactly. Or Messi. Or, Messi. So – it's it's more of a, I, I've gone back and I went back to and I did that against Peru was this is a boxing match. This is 1v1. This is 11v11. Yep. It's all mindset. If you are going to look at the names on the team sheet, you can look at the badge on the opposition shirt, yeah, of course, they've had better achievements than us as, as a nation. Australia's only ever won two games at a World Cup ever, one in 2006 and one in 2010. And... For me, the mindset is everything. The brain, whichever way the brain is going, the rest will follow. And so to from my mindset is we're going to go there to the World Cup with high expectations but also with a lot of belief because we've beaten Peru. Peru were ranked number 22 in the world and we were 42. And we showed that game especially that we went back to the old Aussie DNA way and that is backs to the wall. We come, we we go forward. We don't. We believe in ourselves. We go out there. We win our own one v one battles. And I don't care who that's against. When it's up against France, first game, we we have respect for the opposition, France. But let's not talk about them. Let's talk about us. Let's look at what our strengths are. And of course, they have strengths. But we will nullify them. And and uh, the mind. The mindset will be to go out there and, and give our best. Who's in the pool? Who, so you've got France, obviously, France, the first game. First game. Second game is Tunisia. Third game is Denmark. So, okay. <laughs> uh, pretty good territory. Yeah, but look, uh, people call it the group of death. Like you, It's crazy because uh, 
you go into a World Cup, 32 nations. Every group's hard. Mm. Every group's tough. But I call it the group of dreams. Because what would you – like this is something that you're going to remember for the rest of your life. World title fights every time and if you yes. win, they, it puts exactly. you way up there on the map. Exactly. And this is an opportunity for all these boys uh, to show what their, their worth is and what they've got and to show the world and to make the nation proud. How do you keep them uh, on that journey? Like uh, because they're young men, um, yeah. how, how many in the squad? Uh, 26. 26 in the squad, mm. okay. So you've got 26 young men. Um mm. Not as experienced, not that experienced in life, so to speak. Uh, keep them on track. They will read shit, which they probably shouldn't read. Do you say to them, don't read anything? Yeah. Do, you, do you put a ban on media? Not media. Uh, I, d- I discourage them to get on social media. You, you, I sorry, you, encourage them to not be on social yeah, media. Just stay off social stay media. Stay off. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't do it. I can't. Even, I, I don't even look at it. Can't even turn it on. You won't read any good on social media. So get off it. Yeah, and and it can have a mental effect. You mm. know, the I say to the boys before you go to bed, don't look at social media. Listen to music, or listen to a comedian. Because if you laugh. If you're laughing before you go to you sleep, sleep you'll have a great sleep. I'm like that now. Yeah. <laughs> I'm serious. I go on to Netflix and I find the comedy exactly. channel and I, just before I go to sleep. And, and Mark, that's, you know, sleep is so important and with the relaxation, but the sleep is so important. If you don't, if the last thing you read or if the last thing you watch is Channel 9 News, <laughs> there's nothing positive. Yeah, so you're like shooting each other in the Ukraine. Yeah. You get stressed out. Well, that, and you don't sleep well. Yeah, Because, you, you know, you, you're in a negative mindset. So... You need to relax the brain and the mind and, and go to bed and, and and have a great sleep. And that, again, is just listening to music, listening to comedian, don't and try to keep the boys relaxed. But at the same time, building that belief with the players that, you know, that everything is possible. Everything is possible. It's not written in stone that France will beat Australia at the World Cup. It's still nil-nil. It's still that we have a great opportunity. And... You've just got to go out in the field and believe in yourselves and, and give it everything that you've got and play to the best of your ability. You have to – the hardest thing for us uh, or international coaching is you don't have any control of the fitness levels of the players because they come into camp seven days before and they've got to be ready. So at their clubs, I'm in communication with them all the time talking about, you know, that side of it. You've got to work hard. You have to be the fittest you've ever been in your life. You've got to be ready to run for 90 minutes like a lunatic, the most you've ever ran on the pitch because if the opposition, you know, again, the 1v1, the France have got strengths, we have to take those strengths away from them and that is obviously them with the ball, their quality on the ball. Well, we've got to be in their face for 90 minutes and put pressure on them defensively. It's funny um, you should say that because uh, you and I have, you know, have a, go- a common friendship with Jeff Fennick and – he was a skilled fighter, but he was definitely the fittest fighter on the planet. Probably would go down as the fittest fighter ever. Um, and he he just was relentless. Mm. He would just attack and attack and attack and uh, and then defend, but then still attack. Relentless in his sport. Is that something that you think? Whilst you know France might have some big names, you know, highly skilled, really experienced, blah blah blah, you know, world stage, that our players might be able to beat just not just through fitness but by but at least match them with fitness mm. and then be relentless is that a, yeah. is that part of your the, mindset for relentlessness the best, the best meaning of defense is attack and that's the best way and if you're going to sit back and let them play to their strengths which is having the ball and we sit deep and just try to stop them i've never coached that way mark i, yeah. I don't believe in you know i felt watching the 2018 world cup we went out and we tried not to lose yeah, then you're going to lose. I expect our boys to go out and give their best to win and be on the front foot and and really, you know, really make the nation proud but also their families, their friends and and themselves proud because it's a one-off situation a lot of times where you only get this opportunity in life once. Or, yeah, and so let's take that and, you know, go out there and if the opposition – you know, as I said, the old way, you talk about Jeff, but the old way is if that other guy runs 8Ks or 10Ks, but you run 13, like 1v1 battle, 11v11, that's your man, win that fight. Mm. If you win eight fights out of 11, 
on yeah. the pitch, you've got a good chance. Of you winning. get the chocolates. Yeah. yeah. Well, it might not. We might not be technically as good as those other nations. We might not be tactically as good as those nations, but physically, we can be better, and mentally, and that's a big thing for me. Mental, the mental aspect of elite sport these days, and whatever in any occupation, is, you know. If the mind is clear, the mind is right, then you can achieve anything. When you look at the players that you want in your side, at what point, knowing that you know, the World Cup's in November, isn't it? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So you, you'll let's say, are you looking at them a year or two before, or three years before, and what's your interaction with them because they're playing at club level? Mm. Let's just take the Olympics out of it, but they're playing at club level. So what is your interaction with them and their coaches? Um, to start. You know, three years ago when I took on the job, four years ago when I took on the job, I was, you know, when I went to that World Cup, I walked away from there and I thought, how am I going to replace Timmy Cale, mm. Milo Yednak, um, Mark Milligan and that, and we had no kids coming through. So that's why I did the Olympic team. I did that against the wishes of David Gallup at the time and, and, uh, and the board because if we didn't do well at the Olympics or we didn't qualify for the Olympics, I'd cop the criticism, which would then have a dampener on the soccerers. And it's for me, it's it's just try to helping uh, help kids have have lives and careers and fulfil their dreams. And so communication is the key. And I took on that Olympic uh, job with the soccerer boys. I'm in contact with them every week. You know, just texting. Well, I'm watching their games every week because they're a clubland. If one of them scores, I send them a text, you know, that's uh, congratulations and great goal or, you know, keep up the good work, you're playing well. If someone's struggling and they're not playing, I'll send, send them a text, give me a call if you need my help. And I speak to them uh, again every week to keep them going mentally because communication's the key. And professional football these days is – and sport I suppose but on my side I can talk about football it's it's really become one life and that's professional the old days you had two lives professional and personal and a lot of times now the personal life's gone these guys can't go out to a restaurant and have a beer or to a pub or just have one or two beers you put one beer in front of a player these days and they sit there and they're at a pub someone takes a photo social media he's a drunk all of a sudden he's an alcoholic yeah and he's got drinking issues. That goes straight back to the club, the coach and questions. So a lot of it is they're locked down. They're stuck at home. They, they don't get a chance to go and have fun outside. So what are you doing mentally to replace that if you can't go and do that? And, you know, I say to the boys, go and play golf. You know, go fishing. Have a hobby. You've got to let the brain relax. Don't you're sitting at home probably just staring at four walls beating yourself up and it's not going to do you any good. So, you know, making sure that the care side of it, I'm not a coach, probably, Mark, I've changed a hell of a lot because, you know, the old days it was more about me. You know, probably 10 years ago it was, I want to be the top coach, I want to, you know, achieve all this. But I have worked out over that time that get the players ready, get them mentally right be there to support them and they will perform and in the end I'll get the rewards. Who looks after Graham Arnold then? Because, um, I mean, you get- I've got this British bulldog at home. He's great. <laughs> Win, lose or draw, he's the same. <laughs> well, no, actually, funnily enough, uh, pets are a great outcome. Yeah. Don't, don't get me wrong. Yeah. I, I accept it. But whilst you're doing all this, you're sort of taking it all and you probably are reading the newspapers and you are being no. interviewed. No. And you are, but you are answerable to, you know, yeah. Gallup and all the others, you know, whoever's there. Yeah. Um, you know, you're answer, answerable to your board and what yeah. have you, the people who appoint you. Um, you're answerable to the parents of the kids mm. that play for you. Um, you're answerable to the kids themselves, the boys mm. themselves. Um, you're answerable to Australia mm. to some extent. If we don't yeah. get the World Cup, they're going to find someone to blame. Media will yeah. blame you yeah. for sure. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's draining yeah. or, or it's not draining. Does it drain um, you? It's time-consuming, but it's it's something that I enjoy, and and honestly, Mark, it's it's more about me helping kids have great lives. I've had a fantastic life, mate. Like if, and it won't happen, but if it wasn't here next week, 
and if I wasn't here next week, well, then I couldn't blow up because, you know, I've been involved in football, world sport for 40 years as a professional footballer. Then I went into being assistant coach with Gus Hiddink and Frank Farina before him and been to World Cups. I've been to four Olympics. I've been, you know, now coaching. I've had a great life, mate. I just, if I could help a couple of dozen kids have the same life I've had, that would make me so happy because it's uh, it's really great to be involved in a, a sport in, in, in that industry. I understand media. I've been around that long. I understand that they've got a job to do. They've got to put food on their, on the table for their, their families. They've got to pay mortgages. So they got to sell newspapers. They got to sell, and they got to create headlines. And these days, it's not a good headline. These days, the way they get their clickbait and they get their money is everything's got to be negative. And and you know, but I understand how that is. So for me, I'm happy to take all the the brunt of all the shit, as long as they leave the players alone. And you know, if if that and the players see that and they know that, they see that I'm. You know, during the the campaign, they could see I was copping a lot of a lot of criticism for stuff that wasn't my fault, and, and and at the same time, that I couldn't really help with. But the most important thing is they leave the players alone, and the players have an opportunity to, you know, fulfil their dreams because it's uh, it's a tough industry. Elite sport is now because of social media and that it's it's tough, and uh, it's it's about. You know, every time I believe when they come into camp, I've changed my ways again of coaching that I've gone from probably being more of a dictator, hard on players and, you know, you do this and you do that to more of a father figure where I'm here to help as a father. And Is that what you say to them? Yeah, 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 yeah. Because, you know, it's uh, I've had these experiences for that many years that I've, I've nearly experienced everything that you can go through as a player injuries and, and people don't understand the mental effect it has on on sportsmen and players when they're injured and if they're out for a long time injured or if they're dropped and they're not playing. And I, I believe that players number one to 11, I don't need to communicate that much with. I don't need to, I leave them alone, let them relax because they're playing, they're happy. Player 12 to 26, the ones who aren't playing, are the ones I'm going to put my arm around and have a bit of a joke with and a bit of a laugh and check in on, and you know, because, yeah, they want to play. So they're the ones that need more work to keep the energy up and the morale in the dressing room. And you, can, and you need that um, uh, 12 to 26 too because oh. if one to 11, someone from 111 gets injured, you need someone to just sort of drop straight into that spot. 100%. And they've got to be on. Yeah. You know, they can't be oh, doubting themselves, yeah. you know, starting to wonder whether or not they're one, any one good. Of the, one of the greatest, and I got him in uh, Qatar to talk to the boys, Timmy Cahill. One of the greatest things I've seen of and being involved in and, and seeing a reaction. And uh, in 2006 against Japan, Timmy got dropped, started, started on the bench. People these days probably can't remember that because mm. they remember him scoring the two goals. But Hus Hitting put him on the bench and I had to go tell Timmy that he was on the bench because Hus was a very hard because he wasn't with us that long. He was part-time and he was with us for only uh, 10 months. And uh, so I, I went and told Timmy because I knew Timmy better and that he wasn't starting and he was pissed off. But his reaction was, when I get on that pitch, I'm going to show you why you shouldn't have left me on the sideline. And he came on in the 78th minute, 76 minutes, scored two goals within five minutes. And, you know, incredible reaction. Instead of sulking, instead of, you know, taking the energy down in the group, he was loud. He was in the dressing room, come on, get out there and, you know, come on, guys. And it was really supportive and, and that. But as soon as he came on, it was this motivation and drive of, I'm going to show you why you guys stuffed up. And, and I guess that motivated the whole team too. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. long on the game, but, the, mm. but it still motivated everybody. Yeah. Do you get someone like Tim Cale come and speak to the players now? Yeah. I, uh, I used Timmy in Qatar because Timmy played with this generation in the last World Cup campaign. He was 36 years of age and these players that we got now, 28, 29s, were 
early 20s, you know, 23, 24. And Timmy had a relationship with him. Timmy is uh, a great leader. He, he really leads by example. And I felt that in a lot of ways with the COVID stuff that we lacked leadership on the field. When something went wrong on the field, if we gave a penalty away, it seemed that we fell apart. And that takes then the leaders on the field to take over and say, okay, that's done. Let's keep doing our job. You know, let's keep going forward and that. And uh, so I do you do that. I got Jeff Fennick to do a, a video because Jeff, in, in my mindset, the way I am anyway and was, was he changed my life in a lot of ways without knowing. And it wasn't until till he was nearly retired that I actually met him. But I was just so fascinated that when I was 18, 19 years of age and I wanted to be a, a professional footballer and I listened to him on radio, boxing, of how a guy could hardly be an amateur and go to the Olympics and get a bronze medal. And then after he came back from the Olympics, went straight into professional boxing and six to eight fights later, he's a world champion. Yeah, well, he's the fastest world champion I think we've yeah. had in our history yeah. here. And I, my, what really got into my brain was how does he prepare for that? How, how is it the, you know, the pressure? walking into the Sydney Entertainment Centre, Horton Pavilion, with the, you know, the crowd. And then it's 1v1. Yeah. Once you get in that you're ring, on your you're own. on your own. And I was fascinated by it. And, uh, and football's no different. You know, it, it is a, you know, because it's 11v11, don't think that the other 10 can cover your ass if you, if you make a mistake. It's got to be... You've got to be on on song. You've got to be ready to win this battle. And I got Jeff in the last. Uh, I just woke up two days before the game and is Peru before Peru. Yeah, yep. And it was just out of I don't know why I did it. It was like Jeff, can you talk to the boys? What took what what made you or become a world champion? How did you do that? And he said, No worries. And he did a video. And my uh, production team at FA, they did, they did a fantastic video of him fighting, not just Jeff talking. Eric Claude's and he had a, a wine bar behind him. <laughs> I, had to, I had to delete the wine bar and smoke <laughs> it out. <laughs> and uh, He loves his wine. His wine rack, sorry. Yeah, yeah he loves his wine. Yeah. Down, downstairs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and I think that resonated with the players really well because I don't think a lot of them knew who he was. Yeah, that's true. They probably wouldn't. With his generation, but uh, with the wording of the commentators, you know, no one gave Jeff Fennick a chance. Yeah. And he, and he was smart Payakaroon and he was knocked him out and then, you know, and and I think that resonated with the players. Were you at the Horton? I, uh, no, I was at, that was smart Payakaroon, sorry, was the one in uh, the Sydney Entertainment Centre. Entertainment Centre, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's Singaki. Singaki. Yeah, I was at that. I was at that fight. Yeah, yeah I wasn't there. That I, I remember paid like ten bucks for a, a seat because it was the cheapest ones you could buy. And then when I got there, there was a bloody posted <laughs> big pole thing in front of me. I couldn't see it. Now I know why there was a cheaper seat in the joint. Yeah. I kept bumping the bloke next to me. But it, it's it's you just said something about leadership and and I and I, I mean I'm a avid rugby league follower and uh, and uh, and I I see this when when you're under the pump something goes wrong. You know, or it's not going to the game plan. You have a game plan, maybe, you know, run a real strong game up the middle, um, for example, that could be your game plan and just keep the power game going. And, you know, you, you, you just mentioned earlier about, um, you know, sort of terrorising the opposition with attack, attack, attack. Let's say that's your game plan, but they score early. What do you... When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. You say to your leaders to do in those circumstances in terms of what they should then tell the rest of the team. Okay, guys, just calm down. It's okay. Just get on with the game plan. Because everything can fall out the window at that point. Mm. And then you drop your lollies and you end up getting beaten by a larger score. I think leadership is uh, its more about leaders step up in the bad times. Leaders are great when things are going good. It's more about stepping up when things don't go right. So what do you expect your leaders, you'd have a leadership group in, yep. your, in your squad. Yep. What, what do you say to them about this? What well, would you say to them in terms of leadership? Well, first I don't put the negative thoughts in their brain that will go behind 1-0 or, or things like that. But it's more about, you know, a lot of players these days with the new generation, they're quiet, they're followers. They will do as they're, they're looking for actions or they're looking for someone with words. So there's different type of leaders. Say, for example, Aaron Moy doesn't say boo. So he leads by action. So I'll say to Aaron, mate, the more you run, the more you chase. The, when they when the boys see you tackle and see you physically do something, the effect it has on the rest of the team is huge. Matty Ryan in goals, who so one of the leaders, it's it's what you're saying. Don't blast the boys. Point them in the right direction. Because he's standing there in the goal goal, goal mouth yeah. and he's yeah. telling him what's yeah. going on. He can see the defensive. He can holes. see the whole thing. Yeah. So the leadership got the leaders. It's more about you know them leading by their example, but also their what they're saying verbally to the players because if you're going to smash someone, the follower doesn't take a smashing. Yeah. It'll hurt him. So pick him up. Encourage. If we go down 1-0, so for example what you said, just forget it. Get on with things and leave that to me to change a game plan if required. So me mentally and also I write it on a sheet of paper because it's easier for me but I have to have plan A, B, C and D ready. And if plan A is not working because the opposition's come out and changed the way they're going to play, we have to adapt tactically. But mentally, the, the most important thing is that you're ready and that no matter what happens, it's a setback, yes, but we go forward and we keep going, we keep going because don't lay down. Don't, don't let the opposition take control and because when they do, they'll, they'll keep going. Is a good example of plan B or C or D, whichever one it might be, is when you change the goalies yeah. in, in the shootout. Yeah, and that was pre-arranged. Did they know that might happen? No, that uh, was not, a pre-arranged. That, but we we planned penalty shootout. So, Mark, if we if I have play plan A, yeah. that's our team starting. I don't play games with the boys like we're they're guessing if they're going to play or not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you know when I played myself, I used to know I used to sleep better the night before if I knew I was starting. Or if I was on the bench, yep. And what my job was, you know. In, instead, some coaches will change, you know, play games and at training and keep changing players around. So the players are always guessing in their mind. It creates I, anxiety. Yeah, and I, and I think it, it creates as well, you know, uh, some confusion on the players as well because it's by surprise and they see their name on the team sheet now before they go, oh, sh- oh now I'm playing. Like, what was my job? What did you want me to do? Where I, I make it clear straight away, and we practice plan A, B, and C. Even if it's for five minutes, plan B, okay, this isn't working, we'll do this. Plan C, we're down 1 0. Right, we'll go with two strikers and we'll change it and they'll take someone off. And then we practice the penalty shootout in terms of us scoring. Um, what about defending, though? With the penalty shootout yeah. again, Matty Ryan had no idea. Right. Penalty shootout. So I've got a great goalkeeper coach, uh, John Crawley, who analyzes the opposition, all their penalty takers. Right. So we knew where he was going to go. Uh, the penalty takers for them were going to shoot. Yes, they can change on the night, but, uh, and he stands on the sideline. And, and when that penalty shootout, he has signals to the goalkeeper. So our goalkeeper, Andrew Redmayne looks across and John Crawley's there with left arm up high. That means the penalty takers 
going to kick it to you high to the left or middle or down low and same on the right side or straight down the middle. So the homework and the planning's been done and planning's the key in, in anything. You know, if, if you're just going to do it off the cuff, it's just like building a house. You've got to put plans in. You've got to build a house to a plan. It's the same with football. You have to plan for every every occasion. And uh, we did our homework on on Peru. And But getting back to Matty Ryan, he had no idea. Now, because if I had told Matty beforehand, mate, listen, if we get to a penalty shootout, I'm going to take you off. How do you think he would have felt, right, for the whole 118 minutes that he played? It would have been in the back of his brain. Especially in the last... 10 minutes yeah. when you know that there's going to be a shootout yeah. more than likely going to happen. Yeah, exactly. And and it would be in the back of his brain and then he makes a slip up and we go down one nil and it's all over. So it was something that uh, I had uh, made a decision on probably two weeks before, uh, three weeks before. We, we, we practiced the penalty shootouts at training uh, before the UAE game and then obviously before Peru. And then it was uh, – Surprise decision to everyone. Um, Andrew Redmayne had been told to study the opposition penalties just in case uh, we did get to a penalty shootout. So he was sort of notified but wasn't confirmed. And then uh, when it happened, the most important thing again, Mark, was when it happened and I made the change and Maddie didn't know, it was more than about his reaction. If he reacted poorly and was pissed off and came off the pitch and what the hell's going on and was body language and and it could have affected our whole penalty shootout. But the first thing he did was he walked off and he said to Andrew Redmayne, this is your turn, this is your time, go out there and do it for Australia. It's really supportive and uh, and reacted very well. Is it, was, because, is it because Redmayne's like bigger or taller? Or what, what, <laughs> what was that about? Like a, I was uh, – Honestly, two two aspects. Fresh. Yeah, but two aspects. One was, yes, Redmayne has probably got a metre extra reach yep. and there's a new rule uh, these days with penalties, uh, with penalties that you've got to have a part of your foot on the line when yep. the ball is kicked, which means the goalkeeper can – he moves later than what they used to. Um, <clears throat> and Redmayne does have that reach. Redmayne was prepared to do the wiggles action where – you know, with all the arms and that oh, yeah, going yeah, yeah. on, uh, where Maddie probably wouldn't have done that. But the most important thing was was probably just to get in myself was more around to get into the brains of the Peruvians. Of yeah, they saw the change. Yeah, yeah, and they would have probably thought with the change two minutes to go that uh, why is he changing the goalkeeper? Mm. Like, why? I was going to ask you that because what's, what's what's he doing? Yeah, yeah. Like Maddie Ryan's their number one. He's the top goalkeeper. And why would he do that? And and it was more about because I felt like Redmayne is a very good penalty saver. Uh, I I coached him at Sydney FC, so knowing the players that well, I I knew that what Redders could bring, and I knew he'd give that distraction with the the movement that he did the wiggles. Um, but again, it was more about the Peruvians looking. They wouldn't have studied Redmayne. Yeah. They wouldn't have. They would have looked at Maddie. Maybe looked at Maddie as a penalty saver and said, "Right, well, if we can just put the ball half a meter inside the each side of the post, he's going to struggle to get there." Where then with Redmayne, they saw his height, and if you look at the penalties, one hit the post. So they actually maybe mentally, it, it, they thought, "Well, oh, we've got to hit it closer to the post to get it in past this guy than what we would have had to do with Maddie." There's Ryan. more risk associated, but that's yeah. very interesting. I, I, I uh, can I ask you? This is you know, a bit of, a little left field, but mm. we don't see many Indigenous boys, First Nations football players, um, as in soccer football, mm. as opposed mm. to rugby league. But we see them, you know, they're obviously prevalent in rugby league and rugby union. What, why is that? Well, I think, uh, I think the AFL and the NRL do a really good job early on the, in the Indigenous boys' careers or lives, sorry, with getting out to the schools in those areas. You know, I, I went during COVID or just after COVID, sorry, I went up to Alice Springs and uh, Tennant's Creek and that to coach some Indigenous kids because I was just sick of sitting around with COVID and that. And uh, I really learned a lot about 
you know, the Indigenous way and, and the difficulties up there. And I would say to every coach who coaches Australia in any sport, they should go and do that because it was really a, an interesting thing. But I think that the NRL and the AFL, especially AFL, they really get out to the schools early and get the kids interested in those sports. And uh, and I think uh, maybe football, soccer, has is, is become too ex- too expensive. Yeah, as a kid, for the parents to yeah, take the kids to. Yeah, is it an expensive game to play as a kid? It is. I mean, relatively speaking. Yeah, it's becoming that way. Well, how do you mean like? Uh, well, academies and things like that, you're paying $2,000 a year. Right. You know, to, to, to learn and play the game. Um, do they do scholarships for these academies? Um, yes. Do academies yeah. or do, 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 do the football associations do a, a, a put a like an Indigenous boy, for example, into an academy and pay for it all? No. No, they don't do that. No, not at all. And, you know, if I had a lot more money and if I was able to, the thing that I'd love to do before I do finish up is run a, you know, try and get the government to help but also like to run a an academy of for the Indigenous kids of um, like the AIS used to be yep. where they can live in, they go to school, they train football, uh, for the underprivileged because it's uh it's it's like probably like tennis used to be where you had to be wealthy to play tennis. Is that right? Yeah. Is, is in that category now? I think so. Yeah, I think it's But what uh, happened to the days when it was all the, you know, the the Sydney Olympic the Greek kids played yeah, yeah. and the Croatian boys played for the Croatian yeah. side. I mean like that that was a, like a that was a pathway for your culture or your mm. your family's background. Yeah. Is it like that now? Oh, well, no, I think, uh, you know, in the early 2000s when the old NSL shut down, we got rid of the, um, you know, the all the different, all the clubs with, uh, you know, the different nationalities, you know, of, of Sydney, Croatia, Sydney Olympic and, and all that type of stuff where it's now more Australian clubs. You know, the, the Croatians, I played for Sydney Croatia for eight years. It was it was like a religion to them. It oh, was, totally. Yeah, and uh, Sydney Olympic. But, uh, you know, we uh, went away of, of having an A-league with Australian-based clubs and everyone was Australian. And, uh, you know, but those clubs still, still are there. Yeah, yeah. But obviously, again, the generation, the next generations were brought up as Australians more than Croatians or, or Greeks. That's probably right too. Um, it, it, and and it, for them too, by the way, it was a way for them to shine for their community. Mm. Uh, like, uh, I mean, it was a bit messy because there were a lot of flares and stuff going yeah. off. Um, I sort of remember yeah. it quite well. Um, but but at the same time, it was not a rite of passage. Like you didn't have any right to do it. Um, it wasn't an entitlement. It wasn't for wealthy people. It was not no. for wealthy people. Anyone could mm. play. Yeah. And uh, – and I mean, people like yourself. I mean, you, mm. I mean, you got a shot at it. Yeah, you know, yeah. kid grew up in a garage. Yeah, and, exactly. Uh, you know, you got a shot at it. Yeah. And uh, but today, you'd probably struggle. You know, like yeah. oh, oh, look, hundred uh, percent. It's you'd love to run a, as I said, something where the, for the underprivileged, because there's plenty of parents out there and kids out there that can't afford it these days. Yeah, and and they I think, they're not the only talent pool in the country, but they are a talent pool in the country, which we're oh, probably yeah. not addressing. Mm. And so who makes these decisions? Is, I mean, is it, uh, I don't really want to get in any trouble, or anything, no. but I mean, who, who makes these calls? I mean, it, it oh, look, Football Australia are working hard on the Indigenous at this moment. And that's why they sent me up to, or I went up to Alice Springs and that because. There's a scout around to it. Yeah. 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 And you've got the Moretti Foundation that was, there before yep. uh, with the indigenous uh, kids, and uh, you know, as I said, it's it's just a, a an area that needs to get better. And you know, the indigenous have so much natural talent. Oh my God, unbelievable natural talent. And again, you'd look back at boxing, and again, rugby league in the old days, the best players were the ones who played off the cuff. Yeah, and they were the indigenous uh, players. And and. You know, in football, we haven't really had that many come through. Jade North, uh, Davey Williams, uh, you know, Harry Williams years ago. Um, but no doubt, again, it's more around the AFL and that do a really good job to get out there and get them involved at an early age. Is is the soccer federation or the football federation in Australia who who looks after juniors, um, 
are, are you suggesting that they're probably got too much on their plate and they're not actually getting into the schools? Because I, I'm I'm getting told because I'm on the board of Sydney Roosters and I've been mm. there for twenty odd years, and we're getting told that we're unable to recruit kids in the eastern suburbs because the local schools here would prefer to play football, soccer, yeah, yeah. okay, and therefore yeah. we we're finding we can't recruit anybody into mm. our juniors mm. as a result oh, look, of that. Uh, I think the world game of football and I think parents want their kids to play soccer when they're young. Yeah. And I think it's uh, it's probably the best sport to play when you're young because you can go into rugby union, rugby league or AFL later in life yeah. with the soccer skills. I think Andrew Johnson. Or Brad Fittler. To, Brad Fittler used to play football and they're all, you know, I got so many texts after the Peru game from rugby league, ex-rugby league players, yeah. And no, they are – Football Australia is getting better and better at it. And, and you've got the private schools, you know, that, that also now are getting a, a, a lot of football as well. Um, and they're getting out and about with it. But in those areas where the Indigenous are, yeah. it's, it, it's a lot harder to, to get it, but it, t- it takes a lot more work. And, and Football Australia are working on that at the moment. I mean, you come from a background of um, non-elitism and growing up as a, you know, non, you're a non-elite. Yeah. Um, Let's call it, um, and you're, but you're, you're sort of swan around, and you're, you know, you're the coach of the Australian side. You know, you, you've been assistant coach. You've been like you, you've got a, a, a sort of background of being at the highest level. So, you when I say you swan around, you hang out with the elite people because mm. you have to. That's by definition you have to see these people. But at the same time, you come from a different environment. Do you ever feel conflicted sometimes? Um, you know, damn, I, I really want to look after. The people that I come from, the yeah. people I identify with as a kid. Yeah. And, and you know, I've still got mates from all those years ago. And, you know, when you can say you can catch up with the elite people, it's it's great. But I don't forget where I come from. Yeah. And uh, people have, a lot of people say to me how humble I am and how, you know, just normal I am. Well, that's me. You're that's, not trying to be that dude. No, I don't. Yeah. I, I don't want to be – I actually don't enjoy that, Mark, really, to be honest. It's like if I go out, I wear a cap and I try to hide, you know, a little bit if I go and have a beer with some mates and that. it's, And, you know, I don't really love that recognition side of things. I just love the game and love to help people. And 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 if I can help, you know, as I've said before, if I can help kids and help, you know, players become better players, it's that's the most important thing for me. When – I remember being, I was in Germany and I was in Berlin and uh, Australia played Italy mm-hmm. and uh, we had that incident, um, yeah. the theatrics. Yeah. Um, how do you coach around the theatrics of some countries? And and I probably should ask you in the first mm-hmm. place. And, you know, we've seen it, by the way, we've seen it from Argentina and mm-hmm. those are going back. But Italians are not the only ones. No, no. Um, do we still see those theatrics and... How do you coach in that regard? What do you say to your players? Yeah, I that think regard? it's you know we had that situation at the Olympics. Um, we played Argentina. Uh, we beat them two 0 which is incredible result. But we had seven yellow cards, and it's and because the different nations and and they play different ways, and it is a game still in in a part of South American football that they they still have those theatrics. But it's it's got to be more about us, right? Not getting involved in it, and with frustration if the opposition dive or that we don't react to it, we just play on. You know, don't kick the ball out and stop the game. Play on. They'll soon get up mm. if if we're not kicking the ball out and letting them control those things. So, you know, it's it's something that you make the players aware of, but. The, the biggest thing is is the referees yeah that come from those different nations so if they if they're refereeing in Brazil and Argentina and they're used to those theatrics well then you know when we come to play not against them because they they can't referee a South American opposition but you know you can get away with some things you know with with those type of referees so I thought the referees we had against Peru was Slovenian um, East European was outstanding because the Peruvians were doing it. And, you know, I said to the players before the game, we showed them some clips of their actions and they tried to milk free kicks in and around yeah. the box. They 
try to create, uh, you know, milk a penalty and that of, you know, we showed them what they do and but at the same time the referee didn't get involved at it all. So because I'm, and I, I remember watching um, some years ago now Yugoslavia and teams play I mean, like I don't know with Serbia or Croatia, I don't know, Croatia yeah. Serbia but they play tough. They play tough. Like seriously tough. Mm. Slovenia is mm. the same. Slovenia, mm. Slovakia, yeah. Czech, but they're Bulgaria all they're and, all they play yep, tough and yep. they're big, strong yep. fellas, you know. And uh, mm. but they play like they're playing rugby league. Yep. They, they will. They they're very physical mm. towards you. Then mm. you get on the flip side. You might play Italy or some of the South American sides. They play that other style of football. Beautiful, beautiful to watch. Beautifully skilled, but. Plenty of, uh, oh, you know, he hurt me or he touched me or whatever the case may be, you know, and, and collapsing in front of the referee. So the point you're trying to make then is uh, for us, it would seem to me the um, Eastern European style of football is probably more our style. You know, we can handle pretty much that type of style, yeah. you know, yeah. and therefore we'd like a referee from those environments yeah. because they don't put up with that other shit. Yeah, exactly. But the... The thing is, again, like if if, they, if a player feels like one of their their players has dived or something, try and pick him up. Just grab him, pick him, pick him up. And yeah, yeah. Just get on with it. You know, don't don't get frustrated because if you start like throwing your arms up in the air, they just they'll, they'll keep doing it. And you can, and you draw more attention to yourself yeah, too. Exactly. It's 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 interesting. It's because. I think those theatrics are mind games, and they're trying yep. to fuck you up. They're yep. basically trying to put you off your game. Yeah. And uh, when you're sitting in the, the shelter, you know, on the sideline there. Um, what do you do? Like what does Graham Arnold do? Does he get animated? Do you jump up and down? Are you, no. are you yelling or are you sending no. messages out? I mean, what are you doing? Yeah, no, it's, it's if anything, just yelling out, get on with it, like, leave it alone, get on, forget it, forget it. Because yeah. if I'm throwing my arms up in the air and carrying on, the players will see that and all that's going to do is is send a wrong message to the players. Well, if he's doing it, we do it. Yeah. You know, and, and as I said, they just need to focus on their job. We do see it though in uh, coaching boxes, uh, the coaching crew. Um, yeah. Something, not you, but other <laughs> coaches um, really get quite animated about stuff and uh, particularly in, um, you know, like uh, more, more the sort of um, counter games, you know, they, they get fairly animated. Mm. Um, do you think that, players on the field, um, that's a that's a bad message to send to them. Yeah, look, I 100% because, again, it's leadership and if the leader and the, the you know, the person who's building the culture within the, the dressing room and the team is losing it, then what the players are just going to look at it and say, well, okay, well, if he's doing it. It's okay for it's me. It's okay, you know, yeah. for me. And, and, you know, I do a lot of laps of the – the box, I walk up and down, up and down. You know, I've, I don't think I've had a yellow card or anything. I've had one red card that was, again, when I was a different coach 10 years ago and I got sent off and uh, but I haven't done it since because I've really realised that the mind aspect, the, the, the mental side of things is so so big on every on a player and as long as you keep that mind clear and, and you're setting the example right, then the players will follow. Well, you've got how many days between here and uh, the, the the France game? You like a two months, three yeah, months? Yeah, about it's uh, not actually yeah, two and a half months. Two and a half months. Yeah. Um, and I guess there's a little bit obvious. There's always a bit of work to do. But are you the sort of coach who, who says, "I'm not going out there to win the World Cup. But let's just win the first game, and then one we'll, game at a time. One game at a time. Yep. Is that how it works? Yep." And you get that into their heads. That's why I believe we're going to do something amazing against France because the French won't be looking at us. Mm. They, they're already looking at the semifinals. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And they're looking at semifinals where when we will take one game at a time and uh, from the first minute to the last we will give everything that we've got. And uh, as I said, it's the Socceroos have only ever won two games ever at a World Cup. We made the last 16 in 2006. And as you said, Mark, one game at a time and let's go out there and, and, and give it our best shot for every game. And you're looking forward forward to the, the venues? Oh, mate, they're amazing. Are they? They are amazing. And and this is going to be a unique World Cup in terms of the distance that the, the, the fans will have to travel, uh, the games, 
you know, from the hotel room where we stayed last time uh, in the, uh, in Qatar, you could see five stadiums. Wow. And it's uh, it's basically half hour. So fans will be able to go and watch three games a day if they want. And uh, and the air-conditioned stadiums are incredible. <clears throat> it can be 40-odd degrees outside, but you go in the air-conditioned stadium, it's 20 degrees. Um, it's fantastic and with no roof. And what about crowds? Uh, this is my final question to you. But mm. I, ju- I just thinking as you were talking then, um, because I've been to a number of World Cup finals and uh, or World Cups, and uh, I remember when I was in France in Stade de Paris, whatever it was called, and uh, France when France won, and France was playing Brazil in the final, and uh, the French crowd every time Brazil got close to kicking a goal or getting ready to strike, they had this crazy whistle that they whistled at them. The yeah. whole, but the whole <laughs> stadium whistled and put they put the Brazilians right off, yeah. completely yeah. put them off. Will you have any strategies around the crowds in this World Cup? Do you think the crowds can be a problem? Um, I think we've got used to playing away from home. We played 16 out of 20 World Cup qualifiers away from home. We've, we've got used to playing uh, in empty stadiums. Um, and During COVID, yeah, yeah, and you know the Peru game, we only had about two hundred fans there. And wow, they, they had twelve, thirteen thousand. So the boys, uh, you know, that can inspire you as well. You know, it's send them home, send them home sad, send them home unhappy. The French or Tunisia or that, but uh, but you know, I think the stadium. I think there'll be a lot of neutral uh, fans as well that are just going to watch games. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, as I said, the stadiums are fantastic. The atmosphere will be incredible um, and, you know, it's exciting. Well, f- for me, one of the great things, apart from having the opportunity to talk to you, but one of the great things for me for this World Cup is that I think our guys are going to be battle hard based on what they've had to do mm. to get there, mm. particularly I, I get it, you know, the qualification process, I understand, but COVID, locked away, coach being locked away, mm. hanging out with each other, probably build up really good relationships with each other. Mm. Uh, you know, sort of like it's a bit like that 300 movie in Thermopylae where they took on the, you know, however many thousands or millions of Persians I suppose have taken it. Feel, I feel like mm. this is Aussie underdogs. Yeah. You said Look, it before, I, DNA. I, I, as, as I said, when I took over in 2018, it was where am I going to get the players from? And I don't want to talk about COVID anymore and – you know, how difficult it was to get through. I, I look at the positives from that mm. and that was not me testing positive, but <laughs> the positives positives of it was, okay, we got locked down uh, in every country in the world that we, uh, that we went and played and it helped build the culture of mateship and family because the boys were stuck on one floor. We had one social room. They just couldn't go and hang out with family and all. They had to hang with each other. And they had to find, you know, they played table tennis and they did all that stuff and they built this morale. I had to, because of, again, COVID, I had to use 45 players to get through the campaign, just to get through it. And it's it's helped build depth. It's created depth. It's given more kids and more players the opportunity. So today with what I'm saying about when I took over in 2018, I didn't know where I was getting the players from. I now have a list of about 60 players that I've got to get down to 26 where I'd never envisaged that would have been the case uh, beforehand. Now, we've got some good kids coming through and these these players are like brothers. When you saw those games in the UAE, uh, in Qatar, sorry, against UAE and Peru and we drove the old Aussie DNA way and that is, you know, fight, kick, scratch, and do it, do everything for each other. And the morale in the group of brotherhood, you cover your brother, you fight for your brother. Yep, brothers can say things to each other that you take on board and you don't hold it as a grudge. Fathers can say something down to their sons and you listen to your dad. Do you do that? Yes. Okay. So I even, Mark, feel that, during COVID, I became too soft because I had to ring every player nearly to make sure that they were fine to come and wanted to come to Vietnam to play uh, with PCR testing, with the with the chance of if you get COVID, 
of international travel, you've got to go into a 14-day quarantine hotel in Vietnam and the stress related with that. And I, I feel myself that I became so supportive and soft because I was trying to get everyone blessing to make to come. But then once the Qatar thing, once we got to Qatar, I started being a father figure, but you listen to your dad at home? They all say yes. Okay, you listen to him. Right? I'm still here as your father. And uh, the Socceroos always, Mark, have had a remarkable culture. And I'm bringing Gus Hiddink out for these games against New Zealand um, because Gus, if you asked him what was his most enjoyable jobs, Socceroos is in the top three. Wow. Because he loves the Australian way that you can say things to each other and you don't they don't take it personally. And uh, to have Gus to come out for these New Zealand games, to give him, you know, for the boys, this generation of players, they grew up, they would have been 10 years of age when Gus qualified us for the World Cup. So my method and my madness is they've heard my voice for four years. I'm not saying they're over it, <laughs> but they've heard my voice for four years. To have Hust stand in front of them and say to them pretty much what I'd be saying is this, you've got one opportunity in life. You've got to be the fittest you've ever been. You've got to run to your drop. You've got to ignore the opposition's name. It's 11 v 11. Get out there and give it everything. This is your opportunity. That his voice will resonate with those players enormously. And... uh it's an exciting time ahead. Well, Graham Arnold, um, I always say that you can see it in someone's eyes. And as I'm looking at your your blue eyes, you you've giving me a sense of confidence um, that you know what your trajectory is, yep. and and you know your players, you know what your plan is, and I, I like you're going to take it one game at a time. I like the DNA thing. Um, I think all of Australia, obviously all of Australia will be watching very closely, but I think anybody who watches this should get that level of confidence that we're going to be as prepared as possible yeah. and what happens, happens. Exactly. We Planning is the key, Mark, and that's, as you know, it's something that I've been big on but also yourself in whatever trade that is and making sure that there's no distractions for the players, making sure that... Uh, Everything is there ready for them, that they only have to focus on one thing and then that is is going out and playing the game and being mentally fresh for that. I can't wait. Australia v France. <laughs> Thanks, Graham. Thanks for listening to another episode of Straight Talk with Mark Boris. Audio and production is by Jessica Smalley. Production assistance, Simon McDermott. This is a mentored podcast.